Well, our passage today begins with the word, therefore. Therefore works as a bridge between concepts. When, when a writer uses the word therefore, whether it's in English or in Greek, what, what the writer is doing at that point in time is linking what was just said with what is coming next. And so listen to how Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He says, therefore, my beloved. This is a group of people that he loves dearly. He says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul has been absent from them for years now. He's been in prison. He's been caught in this slow-moving and corrupt legal system seeking justice. And, and he is telling the church at Philippi that he is expecting them to continue to do something even when he isn't there, even when he's not present. Now, again, our situation is not completely parallel, but we haven't seen one another physically in a long time. It's been about a 105 days since the last Sunday we were able to physically gather together. And my challenge to you this morning is the same as Paul's challenge, a challenge towards obedience. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul is calling the church at Philippi to obey, to live lives of obedience. But notice how it's all bridged by a therefore. Paul's call on the church at Philippi, his challenge, his command for them to obey is rooted in what he has already told them. And he had just told them that beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he accomplished on the cross and what that means for us. And in that beautiful description, notice what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 8. He says, and being found in human form, this is talking about Jesus, the divine Son of God who, who was incarnated as a human being. It says, therefore, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was obedient. And it's only because of Jesus' obedience that Paul now can command us to live lives of obedience. We, the whole reason why Jesus came to the earth was because we're disobedient. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul now, in light of Jesus' obedience on the cross, dying in our place, now we have the spirit and the power and the motivation to be able to live lives of obedience. Obedience is absolutely essential to Christian discipleship. You can't follow Jesus without obeying his word. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and teaching them to obey, to obey everything that I have commanded. And so we need to get obedience right. We need to get obedience right in terms of context. Our obedience must flow from the obedience of Christ dying on the cross. Without that, we have no hope of being able to walk in his ways or follow his word. And so we are called to obey. 
And then in the rest of this passage, Paul lays out the pathway of obedience, and he highlights with three imperatives, three commands that he gives along the lines of obedience to sort of mark the the milestones along the journey of obedience. Let me just show you the, uh, the commands right off the bat. The first one is in verse 12. It says, work out your own salvation. That's the first command. Then look down at verse 14. It says, do nothing without grumbling or disputing. And then look at the end of verse 18, where he says, be glad and rejoice. And so we need to pass the milestone of working out our salvation. We need to pass the milestone of making sure that what we're doing as we're working is not, is not being done with grumbling or disputing. And we need to pass the milestone of rejoicing. Paul is going to lead us down this path of what obedience looks like. And so look with me at verse 12. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is our first milestone. Jot this down. Salvation, work it out. Salvation, work it out. This is what we are called to do, to work out our salvation. Now, some of us have our heresy alarms going off right now because the word work and the word salvation is being used in the same sentence. And and we have been taught, and rightfully so, that the Bible teaches that we are not saved by work. Salvation doesn't happen by work. Salvation happens by grace through faith. So we need to be really careful, first off, what Paul is not saying here before we understand what he's saying. He's not saying work for your salvation. No, he's saying work out your salvation. Take what Christ has done on the inside and allow it to flow out of your life as it makes progress, as it advances, as it ultimately leads to joy in the life of the believer. Paul wants it to move from the inside out. You see, the New Testament has this really broad understanding of what salvation actually is. Normally, when we talk about salvation, we talk about it in the past tense, and the Bible absolutely talks about salvation being in the past tense. Famously, Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you have been saved. That's the past. That's, that's what theologians call our justification, where God declares us righteous. He saves us from the penalty of our sin because of what Christ did, not because of our obedience, remember, but because of Christ becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a past tense to salvation, but there's also a present tense. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul talks about to us who are being saved. This is the present tense. This is called progressive sanctification. This is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ as we learn to grow in obedience. And, and that ultimately leads to a future sense of salvation. Verses like, like Acts 15, 11 says that we believe that we will be saved. Salvation is something in the past, it's something in the present, and it's something that we look forward to in the future. That's called our glorification. Past, present, future. Justification, progressive sanctification, and glorification. What Paul has in mind here as he's talking about obedience and working out our salvation is the process of sanctification, becoming more holy, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul calls us to work at it, to work it out, to allow God to work in our lives. And listen, we need to understand this. Paul is not saying, let go and let God here. Paul is saying, put forth effort. It takes work. It requires striving and straining. It requires effort. The work of growing in holiness and the pursuit of God in sanctification 
requires effort. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. The first milestone is to work out our salvation. Not working for, but working out. Warren Wearsby, uh, talking about this passage, says that too many Christians are focused on pressure from the outside in pursuing holiness rather than power on the inside. You see, Paul said, listen, I'm absent from you, but it's not about me. It's about God working in you. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. We are called to work, but ultimately it is God who is working in us. And look how God is working. He's working in two ways. He is changing our will and changing our works. He says both to will and work for his good pleasure. Do you know that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, salvation in the past tense, you've been given a new identity and a new heart, and from that new heart flow new desires, a new will, a new longing to obey Jesus. And that's what Paul is appealing to here. He's saying, don't let the world conform you. Don't follow the desires of your flesh. Follow the Spirit of Christ and the new heart that God has given you and pursue obedience because God is working in you to will. He doesn't just give us the desire to change. He gives us the power to will and to work. He gives us the energy to follow through on the new desires that he has given us by the power of his Holy Spirit, both to will and to work. And then it says, for his good pleasure. So many of us have spent so much time trying to live for our own pleasure. I know I have. And where does that leave us? It leaves us in a place of misery and despair. I mean, I'm, I am done with trying to live for my own pleasure. There are even times where I lapse back into believing that lie that somehow I'll be happy if I just focus on making myself happy. It leads to nothing but misery. And then other times, we, we stop thinking about keeping ourselves happy and we try to keep other people happy. We, we don't live for our own pleasure. We, leave for the, we live for the pleasure of our, of our spouse or our kids or our parents or our teachers or our friends or society at large. And where does that leave us? That leaves us in the exact same place because we can't please everyone all at once. But oh, the freedom that's being described here in this verse that we would live and will and work for his good pleasure to perform for an audience of one and that he would be pleased with our efforts as frail and as failing as they so often are but as a loving father looking at his little child taking their first steps God looks on us beaming with joy as he is working in us to will and to work and he sees us and it brings think about this that our obedience brings God pleasure what an incredible privilege now, there is one phrase that I skipped over in verse 12, right after Paul said, work out your salvation. Do you notice how it says, with fear and trembling? Isn't it, isn't it odd that a book that's all about joy would, would contain this, this phrase that we're to work, that, would, that we're to put out effort, and that as we're putting out effort, we're supposed to do it with fear and trembling. We, we live in a world that says, oh, no, in order to have joy, you shouldn't have to do any work. And in order to have joy, you, you, you shouldn't be afraid of anything or be trembling. Listen, 
No, see, the, the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 24, verse 27, that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Joy flows from the fountain of the fear of God. Joy grows in the fertile soil of fearing God, reverent awe of God, contemplating all that God is and all of his holiness and his love and his wrath and his mercy and his justice and trembling, fear and trembling, coming before the cross of Jesus Christ on our face, recognizing our sin and saying with the old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Remember, this is all based upon the therefore. Christ's crucifixion, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. This is what we are called to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that leads us along the path of obedience, which ultimately leads us to joy. So the first milestone is salvation, work it out. The second milestone is this, grumbling, cut it out. Grumbling, cut it out. In verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The second command that Paul gives here is to stop grumbling and to stop disputing. And he says that when we do that, we, we, we prove ourselves to be children of God. Notice how Paul connects this issue of complaining, grumbling, arguing, disputing with our identity in Christ. When we lose sight of the big picture, when we lose sight of who we are in Christ as children of God, when we lose sight of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and get our eyes simply on our circumstances and not on our salvation, then that leads to grumbling and complaining. But Paul says, listen, children of God, don't grumble, don't dispute. A question that I have to so often ask myself when I, when I feel grumbling beginning to rise, when I, when I feel this desire to argue or to dispute or to prove that I'm right or to put someone else in their place, these questions come to mind and they're so helpful. Ted, what do you deserve? And then, what have you been given? What do you deserve? And what have you been given? That's what Paul is getting at here and calling them children of God. He's telling them, listen, stop grumbling and complaining. Remember what you deserve. Remember what Christ went through for you, as I just described in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Remember what you deserve, wrath, hell. Remember what you have been given, forgiveness, grace, mercy, the right to be called children of God. And so grumbling and disputing is not right for the children of God. We are supposed to stand out from this crooked and twisted generation. As we've been going through the book of Philippians, we've, we've reflected on the fact that Paul is always alluding to or quoting passages of Scripture. Here, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. 
that says they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. Notice all of the words from Deuteronomy 32 that Paul is using here. Children, blemished, crooked, twisted, and generation. Deuteronomy 32 is a song that was written by Moses as Moses' life was coming to an end, as the people were about to go into the promised land. Moses wrote this song to warn the next generation of the people of Israel to not be like those who wandered and grumbled in the wilderness. He told them to be set apart, to live lives that are different. He told them to shine like stars. That's what Paul is telling us to uh, to do right here. Don't be like the wilderness generation. They lost sight of the big picture. They got their eyes on their immediate circumstances and the struggles that they were facing, and they got impatient, and they started to grumble, and they started to dispute. They lost sight of the fact of where they were when they were in Egypt. They lost sight of the fact of what God had done to rescue them. They lost sight of the fact of where they were headed in the promised land. Again, we need to work out our salvation. We need to remember where we were and where we're headed and what that means for us. And when we understand that, when we understand that we're children of God who have been rescued and redeemed, and when we understand that we are heading to a place where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and every tear will be wiped away. Loved ones, when we get that perspective, when we remind ourselves what we deserve and what we've been given, that's one sure way to kill grumbling and disputing in our lives, in our, in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our broader society. Paul here talks about a crooked and twisted generation. Loved ones, we are living right now in a crooked and twisted generation. We are, we are living in unprecedented times where what is evil is being called good and where what is good is being called evil. Where that which should be considered abnormal is being told time and time again that it is normal. Where, where that which is wrong is being called right and anyone who tries to stand up for what is right is deemed wrong. We live in a twisted and a crooked generation. And listen, even when our society recognizes evil, as it's still, as our, our, as image bearers are still able to do, even as our crooked and twisted generation still recognizes evil, our crookedness and our twistedness is inescapable. The crookedness and the twistedness of our society, of our generation. Loved ones, there is so much injustice in our world. There is, there is so much, just even in the last month, that has, that has come to the fore that we are all wrestling with. And as we look at our generation, as we look at the crooked and twisted ways of our world, even in response to evil, we see that the solutions and the reactions are in fact crooked and twisted. Our society is able to recognize that there's something wrong, but the remedy will not make it right. And loved ones, we need, to, we need to be very careful. These are times for discernment. I need discernment. You need discernment. We all need discernment because loved ones, when we look at cable news and at social media, what do we see? We see grumbling and we see disputing. And we all have to ask ourselves, am I joining in or am I standing out?
Am I shining like a star in this crooked and twisted generation as I walk down the path of obedience? Or am I going down the ways of this world with grumbling and, and disputing? Paul says that we shine like lights in this crooked and twisted generation. Our world is so lost. Our world is so dark. Our world is so twisted. How is it that we shine like lights? He says it right in verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life. Loved ones, in the darkness of this world, we have the light. In all the confusion of this world, we have the truth. And in this world that's calling out for justice, we have the message of not just justice, but of grace and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation and hope. Loved ones, we have the word of life. And Paul says that we shine in this crooked and twisted generation when we hold fast to the word. That word simultaneously means holding on and holding out. And listen, we can't hold out the word of life for other people to understand and believe who Jesus is until we're holding on to it. And when we lose our grip on the word of God, we lose sight of the fact that we are children of God and we stop to shine as lights and we join with the darkness. Loved ones, we got to make sure that we are holding on to the word of truth, that we are preaching the gospel to ourselves, that we're asking ourselves, what do I deserve and what have I been given? And then we, we need to view everything that is happening through the lens of the fact that we are children of God. We got to hold on to the word of life, but loved ones, we also got to hold it out. We got to share the message of hope that the gospel alone can bring. We see how hurting and how broken our world is. We see people grasping for answers. We have the answer. Hold fast to the word of life. Hold it close. Hold it out. Apply it to our own lives first and share the truth, the message of hope of the gospel with our world. Salvation, work it out. Grumbling, cut it out. When we cut out grumbling from our lives, we shine like stars. And rather than using our mouths to, to, to complain or to argue, to grumble or to, com or, 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 or to dispute, we hold out the word of life and we use our mouths to speak life. To, to, to bring hope to a desperate world. And when we do that, we shine like stars. I love how Gene Getz describes it. He says, as we look up at the sky each night and see shining clusters of stars all beautifully and intricately placed in the universe by God, so the non-Christian world should be able to look at local bodies of Christians and see the oneness and beauty of Christ reflecting the message that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Our aim right now, listen, as a church family, oneness needs to be on all of our minds. How can I humbly serve? How can I humbly seek to understand my brothers and sisters in Christ? That together as one, that we, not just as an individual star would shine, but that as a beautiful constellation, 
would bring glory to God and would attract the attention of a watching world as they see, as they see the way that we love one another and speak the truth to one another and care for one another. Loved ones, this is what we are called to. So we've got salvation, work it out, grumbling, grumbling, cut it out, and then thirdly, sacrifice, pour it out. Sacrifice, pour it out. Look at what Paul says in the middle of verse 16. He says, so that in the day of Christ, this is where Paul's focus is. Paul is focused on the big picture He knows what he deserves, he knows what he's been given, and he knows where he's going. He is looking forward to the day of Christ. He's already said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. His ultimate aim is on the day where he will stand face to face before Jesus Christ. We've got to understand, Paul right now is suffering massive injustice. He is innocent under the law. He has not broken a Roman law. He has not broken a Jewish law. And yet he has been wrongfully imprisoned for several years now. And his focus, again, he's already shared, he would, he, he would like to be set free, but his ultimate purpose is that the day of Christ. Sacrifice, pour it out. Sacrifice, Pour it out. Look with me at the middle of verse 16. It says, so that at the day of Christ. Look where Paul's focus is here. His focus is on the day of Christ. He's already shared in chapter 1 that that he is looking forward to, to being set free. He knows he's innocent. Paul has been suffering injustice. He He has not broken a Roman law or a Jewish law, and yet he's been wrongfully imprisoned for multiple years. He is chained up in this moment, and yet his ultimate focus is on the day of Christ. Paul is seeing things according to the big picture. He is not grumbling or disputing. His eyes are on the day of Christ. And then he uses three metaphors to unpack how he feels in light of that day where he'll stand face to face before his Lord and Savior He says, so that even at the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Paul uses three metaphors here, one from the arena, athletics. It's a runner saying, I did not run in vain. One from the farmer's field, a laborer, I did not labor in vain. And then one from the temple, a drink offering that is poured out. Think about running. Think about an Olympic athlete. Think about a a, a woman marathoner who is about to cross the finish line. And listen, whether she wins the gold medal or not, to make it to that level, to excel in her field to the point that she is running in the Olympics and finishing the race, she is understanding in that moment that she did not run in vain. And when she's thinking about running, she's not just thinking about the running that she did that day. No, she's thinking about the years of preparation and training and all of the choices that were made. I won't do that because I want to achieve this goal, that all of that was not in vain because she's now crossing the finish line. 
Then he uses the metaphor of a farmer. Picture a farmer gathering in the harvest of the crop. And in that moment, the farmer is thinking to, to himself, it was all worth it. Tilling and preparing the soil, planting and then weeding and watering and, and all of the steps involved in farming. At the day of harvest, the farmer is thinking this was all worth it. And then Paul takes us from the arena to the farmer's field to the temple, and he pictures himself as a drink offering that's being poured out on a burnt offering. And as that liquid is vaporized and evaporates into the air, producing a, a beautiful aroma of worship before God, Paul says that too is worth it. Remember, Paul doesn't know if he's going to live or die. I mean, he wrote Romans 12 about being a living sacrifice, but in Philippians chapter 2, being a dying sacrifice is a real reality for him as well. But notice how interconnected he sees his relationship with God being with his relationship with other brothers and sisters. We need to think this way. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, then look what he says, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, that we together are producing an act of worship that is giving God pleasure, a sacrifice of praise that is honoring him. Paul is being poured out. The church at Philippi is the burnt offering. Together they are worshiping God. That's how our perspective needs to be. Our oneness as Christians in the family of God, no matter what differences we may have, our aim needs to be together. And even as Paul talks about his joy, he says in, in, verse, in verse 17, he says, I am glad and I rejoice. Even if I'm poured out as a sacrifice, he says, I am glad and I rejoice. But look what he says, with you all. His joy is a joy that he experiences together with other Christians. And then he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The, the third command that Paul gives is a command to rejoice, that even if we sacrifice, even if we pour out our lives in sacrifice, that that should bring us joy, because in light of the day of Christ, it will all be worth it. And that causes us to rejoice. But again, when he says, I am glad and I rejoice, he says, with you all, in verse 17. And then in verse 18, when he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice, he says, with me. Do you see the connection that is there? That Christians are to, be, are, are to love one another and sacrifice for one another and experience joy, not just as individuals, but that they would experience joy together. I love the way Pastor William Branch describes this passage. He says, Christ shines brightest in us when his people take joy in being sacrificial. This is what we are called to. This is the standard. Remember, this whole passage began with the bridge of therefore. 
We obey because Christ became obedient to the point of death. We work out our salvation because Christ did the work to accomplish our salvation. We don't grumble and complain because although Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter is silent, he opened not his mouth. And loved ones, we sacrifice because Christ sacrificed for us. And that brings us joy that we would have the privilege together as the people of God, the family of God, that we would sacrifice together and that in the day of Christ, we'll know we didn't run in vain, we didn't labor in vain. This pouring out our lives, even unto death, none of it was in vain. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to, in this moment, pour out our lives as an expression of sacrificial worship before you. Lord, we love you and thank you. Help us, God, to respond rightly to what your word is teaching us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.